and we're off and running. Folks, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with a civil rights legend. That's right, legend today. His name is Charles Evers. Now, if the last name Evers rings a bell, it really should. He is the brother of Medgar Evers. Sir, I want to welcome you to the show, and I want to thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Sir, many of the people listening now, as this show is broadcast throughout all the university stations, are younger students. They may not be aware of your brother's story. I was wondering if you could just give a brief synopsis of that story right now. I guess the story is brief and short and long. thing I can say is he's one of the many Negroes of those times. We were Negroes and every year we changed that wanted to be free. We were denied any the rights of others who had rights in this country. We couldn't vote. We couldn't drink water out of a public water fountain. We couldn't uh, use public restrooms. We couldn't do anything that other, that whites did. And, and Medgar and I both went and fought in World War II for democracy to save this country. And we came back and couldn't enjoy it. So we decided to there's no point in going killing Germans and Japanese and came living in, 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 in the country and with our own folks. So he and I just decided to start trying to find out what the problem was. And we realized that it's all in our political powers. It's the, it's the, the judges and the constables and the mayors and those are, and his representatives, those are the ones who called us, made the law that, that denied us the right to be free. So we began to fight against it. Organized against it. When did you start your organization uh, against it? Was it in the fifties, the sixties? Yes, and if it, when we first came out, we went in the army, and we, you know, we had went to a segregated army, had uh, and Negro troops in one rundown camp, and the whites were in the other, another good camp. The Negro troops had old uh, half TX, that's where you post a chain where you get your your goods from, and the whites had had the the nice clean stores, and we knew then it was wrong, and uh, so we. It really began in the army, and when we came out of the army, we didn't didn't stop. We came home and went straight to our hometown, which is Dekeeler, Mississippi, and tried to register. And they said, "You you niggas can't register. It's not your job." And things have changed for y'all. So we said, "The hell, it ain't changed. We gonna make it change." And we went from there. So and started getting a few other Negroes to join us. And we wanted to get and Dr. Aaron Henry, Alfred Clark, there, and Dr. T. R. M. Howard was one of our leading positions at that time black doctor uh, Negroes at that time and we changed as I said earlier so that's what that's how we feel how wrong it was and then uh, we began trying to argue and reach out to get people to help us and that's uh, he's the one who really started and I joined him as the 
state coordinator for border registration. He was the one for integration. What was life like in Mississippi at that time for you once you started this ball rolling, if you will? Was there a lot of opposition? Oh, God, yeah. Threats every day, every hour. Just about the, anywhere we went, somebody was harassing us. If we went to stores, if you if you drove our car, we couldn't even park our car on the main street. None just me to any Negro. One just me. I met girls, all of us. And that's what we got. We got just, just couldn't handle it no more. And just didn't make sense. And finally, when a few white kids began to come in to help us from the north, that's when things began to change. When they saw them beating us and throwing gas on us and tear gas on us and dogs on us, because we just wanted to read, just wanted to be an American citizen, then that's when the government started stepping in. And some, and a number of kids, and a few from Canada came, by the way, and New York and other places, California, one or two of them, and joined us. And when television began to show that type of brutality and what it was about, and some things began to change. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com Folks, we're speaking with a living legend today. His name is Charles Evers. He's the brother of Medgar Evers, but he's much more than that as well. Not that that's anything <laughs> to look down upon. He was the leader of the NACCP, NA. AACP, pardon me, in Mississippi. He was also the very first mayor, a black man voted as a mayor. He has all these wonderful credentials. And of oh, course, God. But it, it's groundbreaking, sir. You know, I interviewed Abraham Bolden. I, you probably don't know that name, but he was the uh, first African-American Secret Ooh. Service agent handpicked by... Oh. John F. Kennedy, and um, he would walk into his office, and and here's a man responsible to protect John F. Kennedy. He would walk into his office, and somebody would hang a bloody noose over his desk. (laughs) People today are shocked by this, but this was commonplace in those days. And this is what I'm trying to get through to the students today. To have an African-American in the White House is... A miracle. And it's so important, though, that you also get out to them, that we as blacks have the same responsibility as anyone else has. Once we get these things, we got to use them like anyone else. And for the advancement of all of us, not just black folks, that was the problem with white people. They just only want to see white people with freedom. Well, that's just wrong. And I've been 100% against segregation, no matter who does it. I don't belong to any black organization. I don't belong to I, I despise the Black Panthers because they were teaching hate. And I think we got to say that to blacks now that we have an opportunity. Let's take advantage of it. Let's get educated and let's go out and, and aspire to be whatever we can be if we want to be something. And don't let it become a racial thing. I, it is terrible. I lost a brother. I lost two brothers because we were Negroes. Uh, my older brother wasn't, wasn't publicized as much as my baby brother. But And we lost a lot of friends. I lost the Kennedys with my friend. Uh, many, many other. Ms. LaRusso and I was very close, the one who was killed in, in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three civil rights workers were young men who a friend I knew. They're all black and white, and they died for freedom and equality. And blacks got to understand this, and I preach it to a lot of blacks. They don't like to hear it. you got to be just as fair to whites as they were mean to us and make sure that we don't let the same thing happen to us. We become the bigots and the haters as white folks work us wrong. Can we talk about Dr. King and what he oh, meant? Oh, yeah. Rob and Bob, we were very close to But he's always stayed in my house. He said, Charles, I feel safer in your house, in the house I go in this country. Mm-hmm. And why that, Martin? 
said, okay, you got all these goons running. So I always believe in defense. I said, well, I thought you you being turned. Oh, but I, I do believe in it, but I prefer being safe. So, yeah, we were very close. And we were on most of the marches together. And he was a wonderful man. But he dedicated to freedom and dedicated to uh, not to be anti-anyone and just be for all. Do you have a story about Dr. King and yourself that's, that, <laughs> I, I bet, guess... I- I better not tell it. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, go no, ahead. I better not. A lot of person saying he and I we do together. We know we were human, and Absolutely. we all loved the same thing. Everyone else loved, but uh, I guess the most important thing was that he he would always, if you notice in all the marches, if you just watch the marches, when they start coming, start, start beating up on him, he he'd always back up toward the back of the line, kept backing up, and I sort of formed that part with him. So he and I never got beat too bad. But John Lewis, our dear friend John Lewis, got the help out of him uh, at the on the bridge in uh, Alabama, but uh, Martin, I missed that because I, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in turning the other cheek. I'd fight back. But Martin, he really didn't, and he'd always somehow escape it. He escaped it, but he, he was a great person, and he loved people, period. But he's human like all the rest of us. Everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com Folks, we're speaking with Charles Evers. He's a legend, folks. Civil rights legend. I don't know about a legend. I, am a, I happen to be lucky to be 88 years old now and blessed to see so much changes. And 98% is for the better. Let's talk Talk about the changes. Has it really changed? Has the core changed? The whole oh, yes. it, things have changed. Everything has changed. And I'm not going. I'll be the last one to tell you things haven't changed. They haven't changed as much as we would like it, uh, and they haven't changed to the point where uh, black folks and white folks respect each other equally. But the sad part of it is, and somebody don't want to hear it, anyone want to hear this. Black folks have become their own worst enemy because now that uh, we went from white superiority and violence and hatred to black violence and hatred. And that's the part that we hate. For the chance to be become uh, President of the United States, look what we have. Yes, things have changed. The chance to be governor, we had the highest number of black elected officials in the country in the state of Mississippi. Whereas 50 years ago, there wasn't a single black elected here other than Mount Bayou, which is an all-black town. So, yes, things have changed. We can go to any school in the country. Look at our football team, the Ole Miss, Mississippi State. Ole Miss, when my brother first tried to get into school, now we have more blacks in school than Ole Miss. I have a two granddaughters who are law degrees from Ole Miss than any other state in the nation. Yes, things have changed. But we as black folk got to be willing to accept the change and the responsibility. Sir, can we talk a little bit about your friendship with Ted Kennedy? Now, <laughs> go ahead, sir. Yes, sure we can. Well, in the Kennedy, I was, very, I was closer to Bobby than I was Teddy. But but by Bobby and I was very close. I was with him from the time he started running for office until he was the day he was night he was killed. I was there with him. Uh, Ted and I became very close after Bobby's death, and Ted and and uh, I didn't agree on a lot of him because I used to tell him all the time. I said, Ted, you talk all that good liberal talk, but you don't show it. What do you mean, John? I said, so in your office, you got one black man working, just one. And uh, I said, you know, if you're going to talk equality and, and, and justice. Then you gotta first show it. He laughed off. So well, that's not true. I, I believe in civil rights. I know you believe in it, but then prove it. And uh, so he was—he was a very good guy, and I liked him. But uh, I still say a lot of those liberals now. I said, and I hope some of y'all listen out there in, in Canada. 
talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. Check the positions of where people are, are, are placed and see how many people other than your own race have those positions and that opportunity. Bobby Kennedy. You said you were closer My to Bobby. My dear friend. Bobby and I was very, very close. And I, I have pictures of him and I all over the country when they ran for him, when President Point him Attorney General, and after he decided to step down and run for the Senate in New York, I said, Bobby, please don't go. Don't. We need you because unless we have somebody like you there, then we're not going to get things banging in justice. Well, yes, yes, they are, Charles. Yes, and he also told me one thing that I remember more than anything. He said, Charles, the time to leave when the people scream you up will be the first to scream you down. He said, leave before it's too late. He said, I'm going to run for the Senate. He said, will you support me? I said, oh, Bobby, please. I was head of NACP at that time. Mm-hmm. I said, just don't run. So he went on and I said, yes, I'll support you. So then he and I camping all over New York, Syracuse, Rochester, uh, New York City, Harlem, all over New York. And one day we was at the University of, I believe it was Syracuse, and he was trying to read. He could never read a speech. He was stumbling, trying to read. I said, be back on the path. I said, Bobby, damn it, stop trying to read the damn speech. Just get up and tell people what you're going to do if you become senator. If they don't know what the hell you're going to do, stop. That's where we talk to each other. I said, don't be trying to read something off what somebody else said. I said, I don't know if I can do that. I guess you can't just try it. So the guy came on down to Rochester. I mean, Rochester. I mean, Rochester. I mean, Rochester. And there were just thousands of people there, kids, students. And he got up and I was standing there near where I could see him, you know. And I said, go ahead, go ahead. And he started talking. And he just started talking about himself and what he believed in this country and what all it could be. And the crowd went crazy. And when he became uh, a seller, what he wanted to do for New York, and they went wild. And back on the plane, which was, we had our own plane, it's called the Caroline, uh, the Kennedy plane. He said, Charles, damn, it worked, it worked. I said, I tell you that. No one knows what you're going to say, but you when you get up on that stage. So from then on, I don't know if Bob ever wrote another speech. He'd always just talk about this country and what it meant to him, what we can make this country to be. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com Sir, were you there the day with Bobby, the day that Mr. King died and Bobby had to give that famous speech? I was there with Bob when... when, 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 oh, when oh, when we were in the New Year's Lord. We were in Indiana. Oh, that was that was some terrible time. Believe me, I tell you. And Bobby, it got it really got to me because he just broke down. And when he went, he said, "Come on, child, let's go. We gotta go." We went out this great mass rally. There was just thousands at that time Negroes. They were mad and crazy. And he said, "He, he got me. He said, 'I'm gonna be all right. I'm gonna be, gonna be all right. I'm gonna be all right. I'm sure you're gonna be all right.'" And we marched, walked on through the crowd and got up on the stand when he started speaking. And he went on to tell, tell them about how bad it was. And somebody said, you don't know nothing about it. He said, you just forgot what happened to me. And that just shut the crowd up. And he said, because hatred is a terrible thing. And just because the color of your skin, you hate another person. There's nothing but evil and evil itself. He says, I would ask you all, I know we've lost a great man. And we lost a great leader. I said, but we got to go head on and carry out the thing. And let's don't ride anymore. Let's don't burn and tap our own neighborhood. That's when we get home. Our own neighborhood. No, they don't burn the town. Their own neighborhood. They weren't going downtown. He said, and go out here and brush and vote. And when I become president, we're going to change things. 
and that hushed him up. And that was the greatest speech I guess I've ever heard him say. And from there on to uh, California, and you know the, the, the result there. Oh, yeah. We campaigned. I was campaigning with him that day, and that evening coming in through Harlem, I mean through Brooklyn, hell, I mean through uh, Watts. He was hanging, kept hanging out the car. I said, Bobby, sit down. They're going to snatch you. I can't say on air what I said. Snatch you out of this damn car. You don't sit down. And and he, he kept his fire. One of them tried to hang on to him. And, we, and Ray Fitzgerald at that time, who was, uh, was one, of, one of our great supporters, grabbed him, held on to him, keep him falling. I said, I told you to sit down. So he sat down and got, and got back to the hotel. He said, damn, why are you always right? I said, I'm one of them. That's why I'm always <laughs> And then we went in the hotel, and we'd always have a little meeting before. And when they announced he'd won the number, won the uh, California uh, race, uh, we went upstairs, as we always did, and have our little meeting. And he'd always say what he got to say. And we and the crowd was downstairs waiting on us at, at the hotel. We all stayed in the same hotel together. And we got to go to Elsa. Elsa would always be with us in some cases like that. So she was there, and the rest of his wife, Ethel, I mean. And we got ready to go downstairs. I said, I don't think I'm going to go by. He said, oh, Charles, come on. I said, no, I'm not going. I said, don't you get up and meet you and thanking me and the rest of us, other, other Negroes who help you. That's our job. He said, oh, come on. I said, no, I'm not going. So he said, okay, then. I said, I'll watch you on TV. So he went on downstairs. Simon said, go on down. And by the time they got in, and I saw the rest, let me get out. And I guess I better go on down in with him and let him know I'm there. So when I went down, he was just coming up on the stage. And I stood down and pushed and got right and saw in front. We could see no shit. We were all there. And he spoke for about 10 or 15 minutes. Great speech. And then balloons everywhere. And people, there's thousands of people, I thought, in that hotel room. And all of a sudden, when he got through, he waited by, he said, on to Chicago. And he turned. When he turned, he went back. I thought he was going to come down and step side of the stage, but he didn't. He went back to go back the back way, which I don't know why the hell he did that, but he went back through the back through the kitchen, and I heard that pop, but I thought it was balloons, pop, 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 and I thought it was balloons, or, and all of a sudden they said, I heard something scream from the stage, oh, they shot themselves, and that time I broke up on the stage, we all broke up there, and Rafe, and I believe, and Rafe had grabbed her son, and I was, uh, and, and Elsa was pulling, hang on, and I pulled Elsa off, I meant to wait, Elsa, 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 please, and I don't know. It gets worse and worse. And then he laying in the blood everywhere. And we rushed him to the hospital. And I stayed with him until he died. Stayed right there. I didn't leave out of the room. So they just went out in the waiting room. I couldn't wait in the operating room. And the next day or two, we put him on the train. I went back with him all the way to New York on the train. I stayed in the, in the baggage room where his body was, where his casket was. And then from we got to New York, then we put him on the train and brought him back to Washington. I stayed with him there. And that was it. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com Even after all these years, it is it still pulls on my heartstrings as well. I was, uh, God, it bothers me. I don't know why I talk yeah. about it. I know, I know, I understand completely. I'm sorry, people like that, but if you care about somebody and a man like Bobby Cannon, who was, who did so much, gave so much, and was cut short so quickly, it just tears you apart. Then to see black folks, and I'm saying this loud and clear, 
don't seem like, like they give a damn about all the sacrifices been made. Now, black-on-black crime is much worse than the Klan ever did to us. That's something to say in it. Mm. Where do you see America going under the, the guidance of Barack Obama? Let's hope that I, well, I'm 100% for President Obama. Let's hope and pray that it continues to progress, progress and nobody wants to admit it. A lot, I mean, a lot of, a lot of uh, people who always never want to see us pro- proceed. But it's progress, and it's getting better. And President Obama is, is a God-sent young man. And he gonna all I ask and pray for every day is God keep him safe. Let him keep on preaching the thing he preaching to make this a better world for all of us, not just for black folks or for white folks, but for all of us. And those of us who claim he's some other than American, well, whatever he is, he's one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. Sir, just to go back to Bobby for a second, I had the distinct privilege of um, interviewing Ted Sorensen. <laughs> And, yeah, that was another dear friend. Yeah. Oh, he, he's just passed away. I was just yeah. I just got back from his uh, his memorial actually in December, and I remember discussing uh, civil rights with him, and he was always pushing President Kennedy to yeah. get going on it, get going on right, it. Right. And I said, "Well, how was Bobby once President Kennedy was gone?" He said, "Well, he said in the beginning I wasn't really with Bobby." He said, "But eventually Bobby seemed to change." And become, was there a moment that you can remember when Bobby made that change? Well, really, I think when we came to Mississippi, I'm not trying to take all the credit for this, but. No, sir. See, see, Bobby had said to me that he just didn't know anything about Negroes. And it's true. He didn't know about Negroes. He lived in the exclusive. He didn't know about poor whites either because he wasn't, he was never near them. So what Bob had to do, had to learn about Negroes, and uh, I, I keep saying Negro, y'all, because that's what we were back in those days. Understood. And as he began to get around a few of us, he began to watch us and observe us, and he wasn't quite as pushy as we thought he should have been. But when he found us all the treatment, he came to Mississippi and saw how blacks have been treated and all the, 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 the kind of condition they lived in, I think that had to convince him that he had to do something about it. And he said to us, a group in the Delta here in Mississippi that I'm going to go back to Washington and I'm going to make sure that things don't ever remain this way any longer. I'm going to do all I can to change them. I think as he got to know us more, then he became more in, involved in the push of civil rights. You know, he's the one who had to get married up in the school. And, uh, and Ole Miss, James Mayer was the black, first young black man to ever be at the end of Ole Miss, but Bobby Kennedy, the one who came down and made sure that uh, he was cared that safely with the U.S. Marshals. So he, he came around. But, you know, like I said, there a lot of whites don't know anything about blacks. How many people up in Canada know about black folks? There you go. That, that's a very good point. That's why I do these shows. And just to let you know, folks, Mini Jean Brown Show is there as well, www.brenthollandshow.com. Mini Jean Brown, folks, was one of the original Little Rock Nine, 1957. Nine little black kids tried to get into an all-white high school, and uh, her story's right there. She was stopped at the door yeah. with a bayonet in her face, and my right. God, what a wonderful woman she is. Yeah. How, you know, I, I, I admire minorities because they take negatives and turn them into positives. Now, I want to talk about your brother's death and what that meant to you at the time and how you must have turned those emotions into love afterwards. Because the students listening now are going to face similar things in their own lives. How do you turn that anger, that hate into love? Well, first of all, I think you got to realize that what you're fighting for, what the hate is about. Why do you hate? What are you hating? And if you know what you're hating, then you got to, how, how can you 
defeat hate. You can't defeat hate by becoming a hater. And I guess they changed me more or less after Megan was killed. My thing when I came back from Chicago, you know, I was in, I'd go to Chicago to make a living because we get done. I got into all kind of trouble here because I was here in ACP, border league, and I went there to make money so Megan and I could someday move to, to Central America and live just the two of us without having any kind of problem. But Medica kept on fighting for for equal right, integration of schools, for integration of public accommodations, the right to, to register and vote, and all these things. And he was killed. I mean, he was killed by a, a white person who just was just ignorant and didn't know any better and was stupid. And I had become the same hate as the white man had become about white people. And I, I said, when they killed Medgar, I came back, I'm going to go and kill every white person that I can see until they kill me. And, you know, and I, and when I came back to Chicago, came back to to, Memphis, to bear Medgar, after we buried him, I was sitting in his office, I took over the NACT, and the NACP said, we don't want Charles Hills out, because that time they said I was a part of the market on that old conference, which I was. That was back in the day. But I was trying to make money. And I took over his office without any vote at all. They said, well, you got to... Roy Wilson at that time was head of the NACP, national head of the NACP, and he said, you can't be the uh, ticket without the hell I can't. I said, I am the NACP for Medgar, and if you don't want me to be that little four or five thousand dollars, you think you take it and do so-and-so with it because I'm going to run, take his place. He's out organizing me a group of, of my own. They didn't want that. So then they let me become the NACP head coach, and then I began to, I was sitting in his office one day trying to plan how to kill white people, and something just came to me, and no one likes to believe this. Something just came to me and just said, Charles, this is not the way. You, the thing that do what Medgar was trying to do, voter registration, get people into jobs, get people in education, and get people registered and vote, and and get people economic secure. Just something just talking to me, all like I'm talking now, it didn't sound like something crazy. He said, now you can't win. You don't have no guns, what are you going to kill them with? Anyway, so that kind of foolish stuff, you know, I now realized that I was wrong, and I was finna build up this kind of hate. Then there were white people who I knew had been good to us over the years. My daddy was saved from lynching by a white by a white group in Decatur, and that man, uh, Mr. Jim Timms, who's been the white man who helped the myth, try to get medicine in the old myth. I began to think about the good white people, and I said, no, they're all not bad. So I guess that's sort of... I know I'm going a long round, but I just want to let you know, these are some things who come to you, and I began to do what Medgill done. That's organized voter registration, organized boycotts, organized getting kids to go in school, stay in school, and open up schools, and, and to bust in anywhere where we were not legally come, we'd go and break the law. And I guess that was one of the things I did, and I kept remembering Medgill. And to this day, we still have, 48 years later, we still have what is called the Medgivers Homecoming Celebration, where we have all kind of people come into Mississippi, and we have a we have a you know, uh, blues, we have a memorial service for them, and then we have BB uh, King being with me for the last part of some years, and we also have the uh, memorial service. So we we, we you know we still fighting for it, but it changed because I found out violence was not the way, and violence only create violence, and it doesn't get you anything but death itself. I think that's perfect, sir. I think we could end it there. I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your afternoon to speak with us, sir. Well, thank you. I'm surprised sitting in my office. I'm getting to go and get a uh, 
my eyes checked at 8-8. You know, there's always be something wrong with you. <laughs> I, I don't believe you. I think you should check your birth certificate, sir, because I don't believe you're <laughs> 88. <laughs> but thank you very much, yeah. Thank you, sir, for everything you've done over the years and continue to do. God bless you. But thank you, sir. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com. <laughs>